I want to begin with a show and tell. I found um, some books around my house, and I want to show them to you. So here we go. That's what's in the bag. Very exciting. Um, here is a French-English dictionary, pocket size. So when you go to Paris or wherever, lots of countries that speak French, you can bring that along. Uh, the Sibley Guide to Birds. Helpful in identifying any bird, almost any bird, in the 48 states. Awesome book. Really great illustrations, too. Awesome. Uh, the Celebration Hymnal. Classic book of church hymns. Rick Steves' Guide to England. Like having a Midwestern dad in your pocket. A Shel Silverstein zany book of poetry, everything like on it. Uh, Tanahis Hasi Coates, Between the World and Me, a devastating reflection on race in America. Read it. Oh, one of my favorites, the Internal Family Systems Workbook. Um, this is a guide to therapy and has plenty of amazing like exercises that I've found really helpful in getting to know my parts. So parts work, internal family systems, anyone? It's awesome, okay. Ah, Harry Potter, book one, The Sorcerer's Stone. Okay, big fans. The illustrated version, yes. How to make superior compost. The guy that came with my compost tumbler, which was like the best gift I've ever received. Thank you, honey. <laughs> Practical, extravagant, all at one and the same time. <laughs> and then finally, artisan bread in five minutes a day. Learn how to make some amazing bread in five minutes a day. There you go. Who, I mean, are you intrigued by that title? Yes, you are. Okay. Now. I just showed you about 10 or so very, very different books, very different texts. They have very different authors, very different intended audiences, and they have different goals or purposes or uses. Uh, and we treat these books very, very differently. If I'm going to England, I'm not going to take my How to Make Superior Compost guidebook, right? Um, Shel Silverstein, amazing poetry, won't help me bake bread. Although that'd be kind of interesting, try to find a recipe in Shel Silverstein. I bet there are some, several. Um, okay, Meg, you're on it. I can't control it. I don't know why it's not working. What if? Okay, so we are in a teaching series on uh, the Bible. We're calling it Reclaiming Scripture. Tom kicked things off last week with a really uh, helpful story about Jesus and Jesus' use of the Bible, how it can bring openness and inspiration and today, I want to talk about one helpful approach to the Bible. Um, much like approaching the books that I just showed, it really matters how we approach the Bible. What do we expect to get from it? What do we expect it is useful for? Now, sadly, when it comes to the Bible, there is a really long history of unhelpful approaches. 
And we could spend a long time sort of tracking those and diagnosing those. And that's what our Bible Q&A event is for, <laughs> in part. So if you're uh, at all interested in exploring a little bit in more detail some of the more troubling aspects of the Bible, and specifically the history of interpretation around the Bible, how that's been troubling, um, come to that event. We'd love to take more time to develop that. But I do want to take a moment this morning to name one of the most popular and least helpful approaches to the Bible, and that is the Book of Answers. Thumbs down. In this view, the Bible is seen as a container for certain knowledge. It is a book where we can find, quote-unquote, the truth about God, humanity, and all of life. And we can consult the Bible for the answers. Now, there are two problems with this view. The first is practical. The second is theological. So, so practically speaking, the Bible contains a lot of contradictions. And there can be really just basic contradictions about basic events that happen, who did what, what happened when. So I'm going to give just two quick examples. Here's the first, Ahaziah. He was a king, and according to two different accounts, historical records in the Bible, he was either 22 when he became king or 42. And it's a little bit like you're in fourth grade and you find an error in your history book, and it's awesome. Okay, second example is from the New Testament. Uh, I've got this one here, too. Eight days later, Jesus took Peter and John and James and went up a mountain to pray. In two other accounts, it's six days later after a certain event. So which is it, six days or eight days? We don't know. Now you might shrug your shoulders and kind of think, whatever, like these are kind of superficial, right? It doesn't really matter six or eight days, like who cares? And that's totally fine. Like I don't mean to raise a big issue with it. It's really just though, if we think about the Bible as the book of ultimate answers, then if we find these factual errors, we start to pull that thread a little bit. And we wonder, how far does this go? You know, and where, does the, where do the errors stop? If it doesn't get some, some basic facts correct, what else might it not be getting correct? And we can kind of begin to call into question the credibility or reliability. And that brings us to the second issue, which is theological. When we look to the Bible for some of our biggest questions, we find diverse answers within the text. So for example, we can ask the Bible, what happens to people after people die? The afterlife question, ultimate destiny question. When we look to the Bible for the answer to that, we find a diversity of views. There are some uh, authors and books of the Bible that say one thing about the afterlife, and there are other books or other authors that say th different things about the afterlife, and they're contradictory. We can find in some books a, almost like a predicted timeline of future events around the end of the world and the, when all things will be made new. We can find other accounts of that future timeline that are different. So we find within Christian tradition over the last centuries lots of different answers that have been developed around the afterlife. What happens to people after they die? And for good reason. Every one of those traditions looks to the Bible as a book of authority. 
that they would find grounding and reasons behind how they think about the afterlife and what the answer to that question is. And those traditions disagree with one another. So who's right? We don't know. But they all have developed it because the Bible tells them so. So this is why asking the Bible for the right answers to our big questions, I would say, is not the most helpful approach to the Bible. So this morning, I want to suggest one helpful alternative, and that is this. The fundamental purpose of the Bible is to facilitate an encounter with the living God. That's it. This is both really simple and also quite profound because we never know what's going to happen when we relate to God. It's dynamic. It's always changing because we are dynamic human beings. We are always changing. Our relationship with God is always changing and growing. We can also expect that we will arrive at very, very different reactions and responses when we come to the Bible. We can all read the same story this morning and be impacted in hundreds and hundreds of different ways because we're all different. We could read the same story every day for the rest of our lives and be impacted differently because we are encountering ourselves, the world, and God differently day after day after day. The invitation, though, is the same. It is to bring ourselves, to present ourselves before the living God with the Bible as the medium through which we have that encounter. So we're going to try that out this morning. Um, As we typically do here at Sanctuary, we're going to look at a passage from the Bible, one that I think illustrates this approach to encountering God in the Scripture. So we're going to look at a psalm um, this morning. A psalm is a a song or a prayer. Um, It's right in the middle. There are 150 of them right in the middle of our Bibles. And so this one is from Psalm 19. Let me read it, and then we'll unpack it from there. Bless you. (laughs) Right? Okay. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of God's hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth except in Iowa winter. (laughs) The law, sorry, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. But who 
can discern their own errors. Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. There are three sections, I think, of this psalm. And I like to think of these as three movements in a musical arrangement. Okay, so I'm going to take each part of each movement on its own. And I've titled each section with a pop song to keep it fun. So the first one is, Here Comes the Sun. Um, because it begins with a reflection on the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of God's hands. And then there are several lines specifically, this poetic, poetic uh, lines about the sun. And the writer is making a connection between their experience of the cosmos and their experience of God, their experience of the divine. Now, I'm guessing a lot of us can relate to that, yes? Um, I don't know if you've had experiences where you're looking at the sky, the cosmos, and you are struck by something. Uh, maybe it's a brilliant sunset, or you've seen the stars on a moonless night, or you've seen the, the sky just stretching what seems like infinity, and you are filled with awe and wonder and the grandeur of everything. This is it, finding God in the cosmos. Now, I had my, I've had many, many experiences. One of those was um, absolutely unreal. It was a, uh, about two years ago. I had the opportunity to travel to a small town in Missouri, Fulton, Missouri. Anyone been to Fulton? All right, hey. Um, great town. We chose it because it had a Taco Bell and a Center Park <laughs> because we had to see the total eclipse in August 2017. Who saw the totality of the clips? Okay, several, yeah. So we made the journey to Fulton, Missouri. Um, we parked out um, in a park, and I, I found out later there were lots of people from lots of different states in the park, because I posted a, a video on YouTube, and people commented, like, we were there too, we came from Pennsylvania, or wherever. Um, so we got to the park, put on our little viewing glasses, and we waited. And we watched as the moon slowly covering the sun. And all of a sudden, the sun's gone. And we take off our glasses, and the sun is gone. <laughs> I know you know what an eclipse is, but the sun was gone. <laughs> and, and like all we see is this ring of fire around the black disk of the moon. And it's dark, and, and the lights in the park flip on because they've been triggered by the, the light sensors. There's not enough light, so the park lights come on. Um, it drops like 15 or 20 degrees. There is a 360-degree sunset. In other words, like a sunset everywhere we look. These are my kids, by the way, kids with the viewing glasses. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we see the, the glorious sunset colors all around us as we're looking. And it lasts for two and a half minutes which is not like that long, but it's long enough to be like, oh my gosh, this is happening, and to sort of register it. 
And I think I just kept saying, this is amazing. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is amazing. And I start, I start to cry. Um, I'm just, I'm hugging my kids. They're like, this is cool. I'm like, I know. <laughs> and it was, it was profound. I mean, it was, I, God was there. God was in the cosmos. And I was, I was full of awe and wonder, probably some fear and dread. You know, I mean, I know it's like on Google Calendar, but like, holy cow, what an event. It was unbelievable. This is what the psalmist is talking about, encountering God in the cosmic. And then the song takes a dramatic shift. There's a new movement, and the song changes. And I've called this movement the Book of Love. The song by the monotones, who wrote the book of love? Yeah, okay. And here's why. The writer uses several words. I see some frowns, like, what? Okay. It's a stretch. Okay. Uh, okay, the writer uses several words in this movement, in this section, referring to the Bible. So let me, Meg, can you put up that list of words, the next slide? Law, statutes, commands, precepts, decrees. All of these words are the writer's way of referring to the Bible. So whenever you see these words in the Bible, it's a way it's referring to itself. And when the writer uses all of them together, it's a way of poetic emphasis. The writer is talking about something the writer really, really wants us to hear about. And then look at the phrases the writer uses. Next slide about the Bible. It refreshes the soul. It makes wise the simple. It gives joy to the heart, light to the eyes, more precious than gold, than pure gold, sweeter than honey, uh, than honey from a honeycomb. Friends, this is a love song. All right? Okay, it is a love song about the Bible. You don't use words like this unless you're in love, you know? If I say, Allie, you are sweeter than honey. <laughs> I mean, lovers, take note. This is great stuff. Take it. Use it. You bring light to my eyes. I mean, and people do use this, right? In our worship songs and love songs, this is it. Like, apple of my eye, that's a line from the Bible. <laughs> and writers use it today. It's great. The writer is in love with the Bible. And then the two main comparisons are gold and honey. Money and honey. That's what the Bible's like. Money and honey. Money, it's, it's great. Money's awesome. It's security and power and provision. We can feel like a million bucks. And then honey. Oh, I've got some. I've got, I've got a cute bear up here. And it's full of delicious honey. I, I was at a friend's house Friday night, and we look over, and their toddler had grabbed honey and was just like... I was like, that is how you eat honey. Yes. It's so good. 
Now, why is the writer, why is the writer talking about the Bible like it's money and honey? It's because the writer is meeting God in it. It is God who is like money and honey. The writer is falling in love with God. God who brings great joy and sweetness in our lives. God who provides, who brings power and inspiration, who brings relief and comfort. The writer is saying, I meet God in the Bible and that's why I love it. This is the invitation for us. Can we imagine ourselves coming to the Bible and encountering the living God like that and being like, it's like money and honey. Oh, that's the invitation for us. Okay, now, our final movement, the final section, goes to uh, the song, I've, I've titled this, You Say, our, our, one of the worship songs we now use and pop songs. Um, great stuff. And here's why. This last section the writer takes us into the interior and starts this dynamic, direct conversation with God. And so we can go to those lines again, Meg, next slide. Here's what the writer says. Who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The writer of this song knows that part of the gift of encountering God is the gift of exploring ourselves. It's going deeper inside here. It's sifting around inside ourselves, finding out what's going on in there, naming insecurities, naming things that we might be ashamed of, things that we might wish weren't there, things we might try to hide from ourselves or others. It's a powerful moment. And if we think about this, it's a powerful movement, dynamic movement within this song to go from the cosmic then to I'm in love with the Bible, I see God in it, to let me look inside. What's going on deep here, inside me. Now, what's remarkable is that in every single one of those movements, from the cosmic to the internal, the writer has the same expectation and hands it to us. And that expectation is to encounter God. That's it. We can encounter God in the cosmic. We can encounter God in the Bible. We can encounter God in ourselves where God dwells. And we can access all of the gifts of God in all of those places, all of those locations. So I want to focus, though, on the gift of the Bible, because that's where we're at, this teaching series, Reclaiming Scripture. Um, we could talk a lot more about the cosmic and the internal, but I want to talk just a little bit about the Bible specifically and the gift that the Bible can be to us. And I want to leave us with a couple things, a couple ways I think we can put this into practice today. So the first, and I have these on slides, Meg. You got it. Thank you. 
Number one, explore the Bible like we explore nature or the cosmos. Okay, so if we think about the Bible as we think about nature or cosmos, like some of us may resonate with that right away. Like we really enjoy getting out to nature. Um, maybe you have a favorite nature trail that you'd like to hike. Um, or once a year, you've got to get to the mountains because it just, it just meets you. It takes you places, right? Um, whatever it is, you know, you have that spot in nature or the thing you go to and just, it helps you. We can also have that with the Bible. We can have those same favorite places in the Bible, favorite stories, favorite passages, favorite verses that just speak to us. And just like hitting Woodpecker Trail, you know, once a month, I go back to Philippians and it's just, it just takes me places. I love it. And it's because it's doing something in me. I'm meeting God there. I meet God at Woodpecker Trail. I meet God in Philippians. I'm talking about me. So you find you, right? Whatever your favorite verse is, your favorite place in nature, find that place and go for it. Have fun with it. Develop it. See where it goes with God. Now, there are parts, though, of nature and the cosmos that maybe aren't so pleasant. Yes? Like you are uh, at home, you pull back the shower curtain, and in your bathtub is an earwig. And you're like, gross. Or you're watching YouTube, and then you're just kind of scrolling through things and hitting next on the videos. Don't ever do that. But <laughs> the next video that comes up is killer whales playing with a barely alive baby seal, throwing it 50 feet in the air, and then eating it. And you're like, that is not very Christian <laughs> of those killer whales. And you're right, it's not Christian of them. I suggest to you that that's the same thing that happens to us when we come to the Bible. <laughs> we're finding earwigs and killer whales, and we're like, what? Okay, because the Bible is like nature. It reflects a lot. Some stuff we're going to resonate with right away. Some stuff we will not find appealing or pleasant. So what are we going to do with that? Friends, the invitation's the same. We can wrestle with it. We can bring that stuff to God. See what happens. We can ask fruitful questions of ourselves, of God. We can ask fruitful questions with one another. And as we wrestle through that, as we commit ourselves, we're going to stay in this process and find out the meaning of earwigs. We know we can and will encounter the living God in the midst of that process. Okay, so that's the first. The second is practice self-reflection, using the Bible as a resource. The writer of this song, you know, in this you say, that final movement there, the writer is modeling for us the crucial discipline of self-reflection. This discipline, self-reflection, self-examination, it is crucial it is foundational to personal growth. We cannot grow as people if we are not engaging in self-reflection, if we're not thinking about, if we're not working through our feelings and what's going on. If we want to become the kind of people God's calling us to be, personal growth, self-reflection are essential. And the Bible can help us. 
the Bible can help us because we see stories of great, great promise and great, great failure. And this is our story, friends. We're human beings. Hashtag humanity. We have great promise, great glory, and we have great, great failure. And we can come to terms with that with the Bible's help. We can come to terms with that the real stuff of our own lives, the great promise we see in ourselves, and some of the ways we have failed. Can we own those? Can we take responsibility for those? The Bible is like a mirror looking. We look at ourselves as we read it. And we can wrestle with God as we do that. We can, with the Bible, also discover what we want, our desires. The psalmist is saying, I hope the meditation of my heart is pleasing to you, God. <laughs> Holy cow! I hope the meditation of my heart is pleasing to you, God. You know, I mean, the writer's saying, I, this guy, let it be what it is. These are my desires, and I hold it out before you, oh God. This is our invitation. The Bible shows us the way to engage in that self-reflection and to push through it or into it for personal growth and change. So this is, I hope, a useful way to think about the Bible. It is, I believe, much, much more profound than thinking of it as the answer book. It is a book that helps us in the wild endeavor of encountering the living God. And through it, we are changed. So let us reclaim the scripture for that purpose. Amen. We're going to transition now to a time of communion and prayer. Let me read what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians about communion. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So if you wish to be fed by Jesus, we welcome you to the communion tables. There are uh, four stations in each corner and then also gluten-free station up here. There are also people ready and willing to pray with you. If you came with a prayer need of any kind, um, please take advantage of that opportunity to receive prayer. They're right out in the foyer through the doors. You can receive prayer for just a moment and then rejoin uh, in the sanctuary when you're ready. Um, so let's stand as you're able and we'll pray as we transition. Oh God, thank you for this psalm this morning. Thank you for the model held out to us of encountering you in the cosmic, encountering you in the Bible, encountering you inside of ourselves. Would you help us to take that to heart, to receive that invitation, to lean into encountering you in all of those locations? 
And I just pray, too, particularly as we're uh, wrestling with the Bible itself, would you help us to receive the gift that it can be to us as a means, as a way of knowing you, of encountering you? In Jesus' name, amen.